on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. Hey there, welcome back to yet another episode of Bloodthirsty Times. My name is Octavio. And I'm Will. And today we will be discussing the brutal murder that rocked New Orleans. So obviously we're going to do things a little bit different this time. There's some new uh, new developments. So. You ever get that feeling like something's missing? I do. We're missing one. And it was a tragic death. <laughs> it's a barbering accident. <laughs> That's a barbering accident, man. Yeah, he severed an, an artery, and Brian has passed on. And yet we will continue. We will press on in his honor. We, we want to continue the, the bloodthirsty legacy. So. He gave us uh, 25 wonderful episodes, and we thank him for it, and we appreciate anything and everything he's ever done for us. But we understand that he has to focus on his career in school, and we wish him nothing but the best. We will miss the wheezing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably more than anything. Yeah, that'd probably be. Uh, again, we will press on. We will be strong. And just hang with us. Yeah. So this one's for you, Brian. Good luck with everything, man. Love you, bro. So we're just going to go ahead and um, just get right into this story today. Just uh, it's it. a long one. It's a it's a brutal one. And uh, yeah, I didn't really feel like bantering too much this episode. So here we go. So today's story is um, it's a little bit different. And the events that happened on October 5th, 2006, in the French Quarter of New Orleans, it wasn't due to some psycho killer as pretty much almost every story that I have told is has gone so far, right? There's always some kind of piece of shit, psycho, yeah, yeah. Uh, something wrong with them. But th this one, this is much different. And I, uh, I kind of genuinely believe that this could have been entirely preventable had the system, the system itself, you know, the United States and whatever had not failed both of these star-crossed lovers so i i won't tell you what happened just yet uh because I, I don't want like your opinions of either addy or zach to be skewed by this um so on uh, on that note let's just start at the beginning of zach's life but only because his story takes a little bit longer to tell so zachary morgan bowen was born on may 15th 1978 in bakersfield california and his childhood was pretty average, I suppose, like not not too much going on until his parents separated and his mom moved to Santa Maria, California from Whidbey Island in Washington state. When he was a senior, he had failed at his attempt at be being becoming homecoming king. And this, for some reason, just left him like destroyed. It just left him reeling for pretty much his whole life. Like it was a big deal to him. I mean, if you realize like, hey, I'm, I'm the the most popular kid in school, which I'm sure he probably was. No, he, no, really? He, no, he's is. He, well, he was. It's not surprising that he didn't win because he was an awkward, like gangly kid. Like he 
the thing is, for some reason, Zach, even at this age, had always considered himself a failure. Oh, uh, he, he was know. only like at seven. This was 17. Like he already okay. considered himself a failure. And this just added like kind of cemented. Yes, I am a failure because I didn't win Homecoming King. And, I don't know. It's strange to me, but, you know, it's different things are important to different people. Well, it's strange to me as well, because like <clears throat> I was in the same like boat like i wasn't the the popular kid or anything but mm. I, I never had aspirations to be <laughs> right the homecoming were you more king. of like stay, stay in your lane type of thing yeah and <laughs> and if i was the you know the popular jock and i'm like i'm going for the running i'm gonna be the king and then i don't get it that would kill me right yeah if but, you were if people had already built you up and you were this yeah. popular dude yeah for sure Guess i can see that i stay in my lane that was never <laughs> me I stay in my lane. I don't die in horror movies. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> predictable is <laughs> preventable. Remember, everyone, say it with me. Predictable is, is preventable. preventable. All right. So before he was even done with his senior year, he decided he was going to drop out and he was going to move back up north to live with his dad back in Whidbey Island in Washington. And no one really knows why he did this. He just kind of up and left. So when he arrived in Washington, his dad had made plans to oh tour God. the country. Whoa. You're right. Yeah, they're getting nutty over there. <laughs> yeah, Richard's so he, getting getting nuts on the on the ones boards. and twos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, his dad had made plans for them to like tour the country and make stops along the way, and the longest stop they were going to be making was in New Orleans, Louisiana, and this wasn't like a week or two trip. By the way, this was Zach's dad had planned this like to for months. Like this was a month long journey. And he was actually going to work at different cities as they stopped there because he was a bartender and he'd be okay. making money while they were there. And, you know, sometimes he'd be there for weeks at a time, wherever they decided they'd like, like, you know, Savannah, Georgia, for instance, whatever they stopped, he got a job and they just stayed there. So in 1996, they finally made it to New Orleans as their last stop. And honestly, the first couple of weeks were not that great. Um, he, Zach had decided to re-enroll in high school in New Orleans so he could finish out his senior year but he found he didn't really fit in, but it was because he was like the only white kid in his class. Like what? in New Orleans? Yeah, crazy, right? <laughs> can, I, can I branch out? I know this is a long, uh, it's gonna be a it's long a, story. Uh -huh. Can I, like a little side note? Yeah, go for it, dude. I feel that because uh, when my mom remarried, uh, my stepdad lived in Indiana. Yeah. And my mom's ambitions were, hey, come move out to Indiana, Crawfordsville of all places, tiny little town. Mm -hmm. uh, and f you know, you can finish high school. I was in my senior year. I could never imagine like going through three years of high school with all my friends. And then in the last year being like some new kid at some new high school. And that was my last year there. D yeah. Dude. That'd be rough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, especially so I, like you I, said, I, he's the only white kid in class. Yeah. It's, I mean, in Indiana, I would have, fit right in but except <laughs> yeah. for i was from california i didn't have the indiana accent but it's neither here nor there continue yeah. sir so uh, zach dropped out again but this time when he dropped out at was he 18 now when he dropped out this time instead of being an awkward like gangly kid he was now a tall drink of water i mean he was hot like this dude was good looking he, he was really tall his confidence went through the roof so for some reason, at the young age of 18, he found himself slinging road beers and shots out the window of one of the bars in the French Quarter on Bourbon Street. Sounds legal. Um, no. 
<laughs> I don't because he looked he like I said this dude I think he's super tall so he's good looking dude so they were just like fuck it put him out the window he'll attract the girls coming by yeah and you know he'll hand out because he's still he, you've never been to New Orleans but they have these windows you can just walk up and be like hey give me give me one of them hand grenades and then they give you whatever you want oh nice and then you just keep walking like drinking and walking on the street is perfectly fine there it's Bourbon Street dude there's like, it's like no Vegas. rules. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's like no rules, dude. It's so Southern it's Vegas. It's wonderful, <laughs> is what it is. It's wonderful. Okay. So uh, one day, as Zach is selling the beers, he catches the attention of two women who are on vacation. They come from Texas, so they're on vacation, and they are here in New Orleans working as strippers on Bourbon Street. So as the two girls approach, one of them says to the other, "I think he's gonna be my toy for the next couple of days." <laughs> But she was wrong because Zach had seen them approaching and he was more interested in her friend. And that woman's name is Lana Shupak. She was 28 years old. Uh, as I would hope any good friend would do, as soon as um, she, the, the first girl said she's going to be the boy toy, as soon as she said uh, that, and he noticed that she noticed that he was interested in Lana, she was just like, all right, I'm going to back off. And she let them to get to know each other. Mm-hmm. So, from that point on, they're pretty much inseparable until a few months later, Zach had confessed that he was 10 years younger than her. And this threw Lana completely off oh, because yeah. she assumed she had been since he had been working at the bar, he was at least 21. You know, he's this tall, good looking dude working at a bar. You know, the, you're not going to think like, oh, this dude's 18. 18? Yeah. Yeah. No so but guess what? Doesn't matter because in early 1997, Lana was pregante. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, Zach had no idea how to handle this news. So he wrote home to his mama. And I was like, sup, mom? Well, the letter I never wanted to write so soon is upon me. I don't know what I'm fucking acting I don't know. A surfer surfer European. uh, British surfer. But uh, just... This is a letter informing you of my unexpected venture into fatherhood. And I made quite a few errors in my past. And this is one of the biggest I've had to deal with. But this is what I get for being young and stupid. The mother was just as surprised as I was, but not as regretful. She wanted to have this child much to my dismay. (laughs) She's a 28-year-old ex-stripper, as of now, Mm -hmm. who... I regret ever meeting. I know this isn't the ideal mother and neither of us wanted parenthood, which is why she was on the pill the entire time. But I guess sometimes science fails. Sometimes science fails indeed, Zach. So Lana was standoffish with Zach about the pregnancy and she didn't really include him in pretty much anything that has to do with the child until his son, Zach uh, Jackson was already a few weeks old. So Zach didn't even meet him until he was, I think, like six weeks old or something like that. Shit, he wasn't even there for the pregnant, like the. the birth. She didn't. Like, she didn't yeah. include him. She, he didn't know. So she okay. purposely kept him away. Um, and when she finally told him about it, he the second Zach laid eyes on Jackson, his little son, he instantly became a father, and he put Jackson above everything else in his life. And seeing this, Lana and Zach had become pretty committed to each other. Like Lana saw Zach like instantly turn on the dad gene. And she's like, all right, we, we good. Like we, we can do this now. Yeah. She was worried before. Mm-hmm. Cause, Cause his he's age. what probably 19 when he was born. So yeah. 
Yeah. So it's it's worried kind about of understand- that. And, and she's yeah. almost 30 at this point, so it's understandable. Mm-hmm. So uh, Zach uh, took a few jobs bartending around the city to provide for his new family. At the end of the year, Zach proposed, and in October of 1998, they tied the knots. The day before they got married, though, Lana had shared the news with Zach that she was pregnant again. And in June of 1999, their daughter Lily was born, which was fine, except the money he was making was enough for a family of three to make ends meet. But a new baby would stretch money a little too thin. So he did what he felt he had to do for the good of his family, and he got his GED in early 2000. And by mid-2000, he had enlisted in the army for an eight-year term. His main reason for joining up was his family and the hope that they would no longer have to tend bar and strip to make ends meet. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Join them. Join the military. You're going to you know, yeah. pay for stuff. They help you yeah, out. They're, yeah, they're going to definitely help you out. Housing, all that. So, Yeah, so during his service... He had uh, gone to Fort Leonard Wood for boot camp, which is actually the boot camp my nephew went to. Um, and Oh, really? Yeah, we, we actually went there for his graduation. It's actually a pretty cool base. They have this, um, well, now they do. They probably didn't have it in 2000, but they have this whole room. And it's like a, I don't know, it's like a cafeteria looking room. And it's filled with computers and Xboxes. And PlayStation. Oh, it's just like a big old game room. <laughs> it's a big old game room, dude. Oh, nice. and it's it's inside the bowling alley, um, like it's part of the bowling alley, and it's actually pretty cool. I mean, that's, oh, that's the cool. only parts that I could go to because I'm a civilian, but it was cool to see. They didn't trust you on the other parts of the base. Why would they? Yeah. Um, so, after boot camp, they had sent Zach over to Gießen in Germany. Zach was part of the military police, and he actually kind of enjoyed it because. Things were calm across the world for the most part. Although in January of 2001, he was sent to Kosovo as part of a peacekeeping mission. While he was there, he befriended a little Albanian girl and gave her a few treats just to be nice. Uh, Considering life for the locals there was miserable, he was just being a nice dude and like, here, have a few snacks. The next day, Zach was given the news that that little girl had been murdered by the Serbians for his interaction with the American soldier or or her interactions with the American soldier. And this event stayed with him for the rest of his life. Kind of the guilt Jesus. of it's my fault that the little girl was murdered by the Serbs just wow. for just for trying to be nice. So that that'll tear anybody up like that's really messed up. Yep. No, I, I can't imagine that guilt. No. Nah. So when he made it back to Germany, things weren't great there either because his family was supposed to come live with him. But Lana had not filled out the proper paperwork to make that happen and the distance between them was starting to affect their marriage as Lana was a little upset that she had no help raising their two children even though Zach was overseas working in less than desirable conditions in like 14 hour shifts at a time regardless he still felt guilty and called home as much as possible to try to make Lana feel better this wasn't his only worry at the moment though because Zach's feet were stupid big like size 17 big and you know what they say about big feet Big shoes? That's right. They say that wearing <laughs> ill-fitting boots can cause major health issues. Oh, and I he... could stab in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he developed a hammer toe that became so painful, he stopped wearing military boots altogether. But the military wasn't with it, and the army finally custom-made him a proper-fitting boot, but the damage had been done by that point. And he underwent painful surgery to correct his hammer toe. 
As painful as this was though, silver lining is that after his surgery, he was given a few weeks of medical leave and he took this opportunity to get home and file the proper paperwork himself to get his family moved to Germany with him. By August of, well, go ahead. I like that silver lining. Yeah. So by August of 2001, Zach finally had his entire family with him in Germany and their marriage stabilized a bit. But then September 2001 rolled around. Obviously, the events of 9-11 were incredibly awful, but honestly, life for them in Gießen, Germany didn't really change until mid-January 2003. So a year and a half, pretty much, things were somewhat normal. I mean, the base were on high alert and stuff, but nothing really changed for them. But yeah, in Gen- you're in, yeah, you're yeah. in G- Germany, it's they weren't like they were affected, but they weren't mm-hmm. too concerned. They were just like, oh, yeah. shit someone's pissed off in america so like i said in january 2003 uh the military police unit was deployed to baghdad and so he was sent over to fight finally so life in the middle east was hell for zach and his units and for all of the military really that's that was just a terrible time for everybody yeah yeah that's an understatement so he had been when he was there he had been constantly fired upon by rpgs and that RPG was quickly followed up by small arms fire. More and more as the war went on, Zack had become disillusioned by what he considered an unethical war. A friend of Zack's describes the feeling at the time. Did Zack and I believe in the war? No, but we were totally behind the mission. And to us, the mission was opening up schools, protecting the Iraqi kids at those schools and helping the Iraqi build up their law enforcement. Yeah, so uh, this this sentiment of an unethical war was pretty prevalent at the time. I mean, it kind of still is when we think back. It was like, oh, that was a that was a war for war's sake, for money's sake. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people think that way. Yeah, there was a lot of like, why are we here? Yeah. There was those like Zach's friend that that realized like, hey, we're trying to you know s- spread you know th- this first world type of living to those that are in the third world um but that's so difficult it is it's incredible especially when they kind of a sect of it doesn't even want the help yep so eventually zach's feet issues became too much to bear and he was assigned a position at a makeshift base so he was no longer required to go out on patrol not only that but back in germany lana had become insanely sick with hepatitis c and she had to undergo interferon therapy, right? Interferon? Yeah. And uh, interferon therapy. But this left Lana with incredible discomfort, and she struggled to take care of her kids, and she begged Zach to come back to Germany. But the army only gave him a few days to take care of his sick wife, and as Lana got worse, the military straight up denied his request to return to his wife, who faced the possibility of death alone while he was serving in Iraq. Even after Lana got the Red Cross involved, his superiors refused to allow him to be by to be by his wife's side and actually pissed off his superiors that they got the Red Cross involved. Like they still said no, regardless. But it's like, just, yeah, bring whoever you want in. You're still not going back. Yeah. So uh, it's hard to blame him, but he was done with his life in the military at this point. I can't even imagine like you're trying to do your duty as a soldier and still have things going on at home and military straight up like eh, no you know what I, mean? I this is one of the main things i think 
that led like an accumulation like this is one of the main events of accumulate that led to the events that we're going to talk about end, later basically yeah so at, like i said he was done with his life in the military but his units was one of the main reasons he endured the horrible situation he found himself in he made really good friends with a lot of the people you know obviously you have a brotherhood camaraderie with your units that you went to school with that you trained with that you live with day in and day out so he felt uh you know a connection to them as well not just his family back home so like i said he was not alone in feeling disillusioned by the military life when a few other others in his unit began to lose focus on their duties including a young 19 year old soldier named rachel whom zach was very fond of she was like the she's like the little sister of the unit everyone took care of her and she was a young person she was really like sprite full like she was just like sprightly and just happy and stuff and she brought a lot of joy to their unit yeah and that was probably around a time where there was there weren't a lot of females in no no in she's the military, actually, so she was among the first like maybe three right? yeah so they you know all the males were like yo mm-hmm. this is my sister in the yeah. military like we're gonna take care of her type of thing so yeah so like i said she was a sister of the unit and this solidarity with his fellow soldiers kept him going but when a few members of his unit had been hit by a mortar fire right in front of their base it severely injured two and killed rachel she was the first woman in uh, the military police unit to die in combat. Damn. Uh, so Zach at this point was really done with this senseless war. To make matters worse, a regular patrol of his when he was still able to go out was like the local market in the area. Mm-hmm. And he made one of the shops there like a regular stop for him and kind of semi befriended the family who ran the shop and the family's little boy would bring him like and his unit like cokes and ice while they were stationed nearby and zach would teach him english in exchange uh for giving them sodas and stuff until one day the shop had been destroyed by explosives and the family had been killed in the attack yet again this destroyed zach and when he got back to germany he was different and moody i mean i don't know who wouldn't be after what he had gone through but clearly he was showing the first signs of ptsd yeah, I mean, I, I haven't experienced war, but, you know, growing, you're overseas, you're in a different country, and you're trying to um, make connections with the locals because you're there to help them. Mm-hmm. And then you see the effects of the war on the locals and watching them die in senseless attacks. Yeah. Like, that's kind and of... It, sometimes it's like, like the first girl in the Serbs. Like, it almost feels because of the u.s soldiers that this yeah. is happening they so target adds, them like, yeah, oh, you're, adds you're friendly the with the americans yeah oh yeah we're gonna you're dead mm-hmm. so like i said this is obviously the first signs of ptsd so eventually he began to fail his physical fitness tests on purpose and the army took notice and warned him that if he didn't pass within a certain time limit he would fail uh, but Zach could not give any less fucks on it. Like, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Fail, fail me. Let's go. Yeah. So, so the army had no choice but to discharge him. But because of what he endured in the in the war and his commitment and service in Iraq, he was recommended for honorable discharge. But when it came down to signing the paperwork on November twenty third, two thousand four, he ended up getting a general under honorable conditions discharge. Even though it sounds like the same thing. The differences are massive 
and he basically loses all of his status and benefits that the military would have provided if he had been given an honorable discharge and could even affect future employment because it insinuates the soldier was a problem while serving. Despite having been recommended an honorable discharge, he signed the paperwork oh, anyway. Man. When Lana asked him about the type of discharge he was given, he was like, yep. Yeah, it was. She's like, she's like, what? What is it? Yeah, sure did. Like he, yeah, just, he I, was. I, I he got discharged. Not. Yeah, he's like, sure did get discharged. That's that's sure. He's like, what kind of? Yep. Yeah, don't worry yeah. about it. I guess. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's a discharge. In fact, he he wasn't honest with anyone about his discharge. Like he kept making up different, like medically discharged, you know, different versions of the discharge, because he understood that this was not good, and he was a yet another failure in his life. Yeah. This led to a massive argument between them because he flat refused to tell the truth about his discharge and Lana literally left him with the kids in Germany. She just, you're the kids, I'm going home. I'm out. Mm -hmm. So she separated from him and she never got back together with him like this. She was just done. So he stayed in Germany and after a month of being a single dad in Germany, it was time to return to New Orleans. When he arrived, the first thing Lana told him was that she had a new boyfriend. With this news, Zach left the kids with Lana and he went to go live in a hotel. But with his mental state getting worse, he didn't last long, like by himself. Yeah. So Lana, Lana offered to let him move back in, but that did not mean they would be getting back together. Zach would just like take care of the house and the kids while Lana worked. And again, he wrote a letter home to his mom. We have till next January on our lease here, so I don't foresee a move in the future. Lana's retaken a liking to the place and is trying to soak up as much of the civilized life as possible. And I'm eating up all the time with the kids. I do all the shopping. I've even started clipping coupons. I prepare all the meals and I've always loved to cook. I, I you know, I, I do all the laundry and all the other house husband stuff. And you know what? I don't mind in the slightest. However, all that will come crashing down in the next few weeks as money grows tighter. This new outlook on life was short-lived as money did get tighter until he found an old bar to work at called Hogs Bar. At Hogs Bar, things turned around just a little bit for Zach and he found himself working the graveyard shift. But he didn't mind because early morning is when a lot of people are finishing up their shifts and hitting the bars to unwind, which means he got tipped pretty well. And by finishing up their shifts, I mean, there's a lot of sex workers that come through. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, different strippers come through here, you know, stuff like, you know, that service industry type stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, even though Zach was incredibly popular among the women and the men who frequented the bar, there's always that one girl who just isn't impressed by that popular, good-looking guy. You know what I mean? And, and for Zach, that woman was Adrienne Matthias Hall, better known as Addie. She was a day shift bartender at Hogs, and Zach would see her at shift change, but Addie didn't pay any attention to him at all. <laughs> Addie could not give two fucks because she, you know, she saw all these other women like fawning over him, and she's just like, "Who that guy? Like, I just, yeah, I don't get whatever. it. Yeah, I don't get it, man. Yeah, I don't give a shit." So Addie Hall was born on January 15th, 1976, and she was known to be a poet, a seamstress, and a dancer, 
who only worked at Hogs Bar for the money and viewed it more as a stepping stone than in like a career. It's, was it uh, an exotic dancer or just like a dancer? She just danced. Like, oh, okay. I, like, I a, like a like a go go type of. Um, I don't know if she did it professionally. She just liked to do that. We said a dancer who only worked at Hogs Bar. No, she was a bartender at Hogs. Oh, okay, okay, I get it now. Yeah, she she only worked there for the money though. Okay. As a bartender, and okay. she saw it as a stepping stone. Um, so it it's not that she thought she was too good for a bar like Hogs. It's that she knew she was too good. She was destined for greatness. There's no doubt about that. She had a rough upbringing, which left her guarded. Addie had grown up in Durham, North Carolina. She had attended some of high school, but didn't graduate. But in her high school yearbook, she had been quoted as saying, I wear clothes that reflect my personality. And also, I also wear clothes for fun. <laughs> After high school. <laughs> what? I, I don't know. I, that voice gets <laughs> <laughs> That's my only girl voice. Okay? I know. I was <laughs> trying to just keep going. Uh, <laughs> so after high school, she went couch surfing across the country, but eventually made her way back to Durham. A place like Durham, North Carolina can only keep a free spare like Addie for a little while. And eventually, after spending a few weeks in New Orleans during carnival season, she made it back to Durham just long enough to pack a bag and she was off again. She moved back to New Orleans like in the next day. So in the early summer of 2002, Addie had officially moved to New Orleans after sleeping in a friend's car for a while. Um, she finally had moved in with a friend of hers into her first apartment in NOLA. She would move around New Orleans a bit, but Addie immediately fit right into the French Quarter and the Bohemian lifestyle. Eventually, she would lovingly refer to her neighbors as Quarter Ricans. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. People that would, a, that's that her plan? thing. Is that playing yeah. Puerto Ricans? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so that was what she called uh, the, the wow. French Quarter residents was Puerto Ricans. I don't, I don't know if that's, know. I don't know if that's I, racist or... I, uh, I, thought, I think it's clever, honestly. Yeah, it's, that, it's I like it. I like it. Puerto <laughs> Ricans is so funny. So, But this also meant that she adopted the heavy drinking and drug use that was readily available. And as fun-loving as she was, she could be equally abusive when she was drinking and it didn't matter who was at the receiving end of her tirades. It turns out Addie was also suffering from bipolar disorder and the heavy drinking just brought out the worst in her. At one of her apartments that she shared with the roommate, she had let a known drug dealer use her place to cut and package his wares, <clears throat> cocaine, in exchange for a few bumps while he was sorting his stash. When he was done, he gave Addie a small bag of coke as payment, but this was not good enough for her. So she looked at her roommate and she shouted, Do you want to fucking roll him? As the roommate looked visibly uncomfortable at the prospect of robbing a coke dealer, she said, Let's fucking roll him. You want to kick his ass? Lucky for everyone involved, the dealer just took off real quick while she was yelling. <laughs> Dude, she fucking she tried to rob a New Orleans dealer. Like I, I don't know that's, what you know about that's, that. Uh, that's, that's ballsy. Yeah, that's not a good idea. No, 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 no. So another incident occurred with a man she was dating. She had caught the dude jerking it to gay porn, and the guy lost his shit and beat Addie real bad, enough that she ended up with the cast on her arm. Like he oh. embarrassed, he beat he beat the shit out of her and like bad because he was caught jerking it to gay porn. Yeah. So what? No, I'm not gay. <laughs> You're gay. I'm not gay. No, you're, I'm, <laughs> I'm like gay. 
Uh, so Addie at this point was becoming increasingly violent and she would she herself would frequently start bar fights and it was at this point even her closest friends began to steer clear of her especially when she had been drinking although a select few true friends remained because even though they knew to stay away from her when she had been drinking they also knew that there was beauty in being Addie's friend and were times were and when times were good they were real good in yeah, fact we, yeah uh, I'm sorry like yeah, when she's sober, they're like, wow, she's like a great person. Right. She's but this, this myst mystifying, like, bohemian girl who, like, gets along with everyone when she's sober. Yeah, it's a Jekyll and Hyde type of... Oh, yeah. But th thing. that's is kind of a bipolar issue, right? Oh, like, for sure. Completely. For sure. And it, it, alcohol Drinking doesn't, drinking doesn't help. Yeah, yeah drinking does not help with, with bipolar disorder because mm -hmm. it just exponentially increases that... You know, if you're on the other side of that bipolar disorder, you're going to be through the roof. Mm -hmm. So at this time, she had a boyfriend named Capriccio. And even though he knew full well what she was capable of, he stuck by her side. While she was dating Capriccio, Addie had confided in him that she had been sexually abused as a child. She told him that the abuse she had suffered was so bad that by, that by the age of 12, she had to be admitted into the hospital. Capriccio knew that it wasn't uncommon for a woman who had been abused to behave violently towards a man she deemed a threat, because in her mind, she was fighting it back against her abuser. Capriccio's understanding of Addie and her trauma also meant that he understood that things would not work out between them, so they decided to end things amicably. I mean, that kind of answers that question of, you know, why did she have these bipolar disorders and act violently it yeah because i think in her mind there's past trauma she can turn any man into her abuser like in in her head yeah so she could easily flip that switch on anybody because everyone was the person she hated yeah when you look back on you know you look back in history and like why did they do these things like oh mm -hmm. past trauma past yeah, trauma it, past trauma it, it I, just it's a it's it's a broken record yeah and a guy like capriccio who I think he said in the book um, that he had dated someone previously who had been sexually abused. So he kind of recognized the signs already and kind of understood that mm -hmm. the way she's acting is because of certain things that happened in her life. Like, so he he took it upon himself to find out what these things were. And even though he was a good man and he took the time to not judge her, but understand her, he still understood that this is not something that he could put up with. So yeah, they, you can't you, you can't sustain that type of relationship, right? It's very it's very like difficult. Like there's you got to go through years and years and years of uh, and, therapy, intense therapy, yeah. Just you to, have to just want to, to work try, yeah, just to try and understand. Like for for the abuser and the one that's being abused to try and understand why this happened to you. That's like the 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 key breakthrough is like understanding like it wasn't your fault, right? And she was 12. Like, that definitely was yeah, not her yeah. fault. She did not yeah. deserve what she got at all. No. It's just unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. That's super sad. Yeah. So, of course, when Zach met Addie, he didn't know any of this. But again, guess what? Doesn't matter. Because when Zach met Addie, he knew he needed to get to know her. And he wore her down day by day by staying way past his shift at the bar to hang out with Addie. And eventually his persistence paid off. And in the spring of 2005, the legend of Zack and Addie had officially begun. The couple seemed uh, odd to a lot of people, uh, just not only in their personalities, but 
mainly because Addy was a solid five foot one, and Zach was just a little bit taller, standing at six foot ten. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, there's no difference there. What are you talking no, about? No, uh, uh-uh. they're uh. basically the same height. Yeah. So Capriccio also noticed that Zach seemed to have a calming effect on Addy, and her previous temper tantrum, tantrums weren't as frequent as they had been, and so their relation. Their relationship blossomed more every day until August 29th, 2005. So this is where it starts. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of the... This whole is a roller coaster. Right? This whole relationship is a roller coaster up and down. There's up, there's high ups and there's low, low downs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this just kind of like the military service, like the sexual abuse. This is just another thing that cumulatively explains why what happened happened. So August 29th, 2005. Hurricane Katrina, which had been roaring through the Gulf of Mexico and had hit the southern tip of Florida and then turned into a category five hurricane over the water in the Gulf of Mexico, had eventually made landfall on the Louisiana Mississippi border as a category three hurricane on August 29th. 2005. As a Californian, watching the news about this, I always thought that the hurricane itself had hit only New Orleans and really nothing else was hit because that's the way the news portrayed it. We always heard about New Orleans. We always heard about the devastation that happened there because of the hurricane. But after living here in the impact zone of Katrina for just under a decade now, I now understand that it was the Gulf Coast of Mississippi which which I've come to know as Land Mississippi because whenever the news covers the Gulf Coast, it always shows Mobile, Alabama, nothing, and then New Orleans on the map. And the entirety of the Mississippi Gulf Coast is completely ignored every time. So it's kind of like a joke here. Is we're Land Mississippi. Like, we're just completely ignored. Yeah. And anyways, it turns out that the anatomy of a hurricane, the right side, so it would be the east side of the hurricane, is the strongest by far so well it's based on the rotation right because it, it works counterclockwise so it's spinning counterclockwise right so the right side is the strongest part so this this actually stretched out all the way to the panhandle of florida like pensacola area and everything from the louisiana mississippi border to that pensacola area of uh, florida was just devastated dude like bad and um it, it tore everything up pretty good. And New Orleans got hit too. Don't get me wrong. New Orleans did get hit by the hurricane, but the category three hurricane that hit New Orleans. Okay. So last year, um, I endured a category three hurricane here, um, in Go Mississippi. Yeah. And that was in October of last of 2020. So yes, there was a lot of wind damage. Uh, it knocked over fences It damaged roofs It downed power lines and it down, it destroyed enough that I was actually without power for six days here in my home in in Gulfport, Mississippi, right? And that's a category three hurricane. And that's what I went through is essentially what New Orleans went through. Like, yes, it sucked. Yes, things were destroyed and it, it was awful, but it's survivable. It really is. Yeah. So if you have the 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 correct like foundations and, and you're prepared for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so New Orleans would not have been really, it hadn't been destroyed that all that much by the hurricane itself. 
But as we all know, because I'm sure we've all seen the footage of a drowned New Orleans with people standing on roofs in the Lower Ninth Ward, begging for help and people being swept away by the waters. <sighs> like, it, it was awful to watch. I don't know if you remember seeing it, but it's it's I remember wow, seeing it on it the was, news. It was terrible. Yeah. So people the thing, spray painting help onto their yeah, roofs. on their roofs. It was awful. But the thing about that is, Will, is it wasn't the hurricane. None of this should have or would have happened this this disaster was legitimately a man-made issue purely a man-made issue if it weren't for weak infrastructure there would not have been a total of 53 levees that gave way for new orleans to become the disaster stone that it, that it became no it was it was it was terrible and <clears throat> when you look back on it you know new orleans is pretty low when it comes to yeah um, oh yeah it's sea level sea absolutely. level yeah and so they they did have the water, the surge, the storm surge did just, it filled the levees to the point where it destroyed them. And it, the levees is what destroyed New Orleans. Yeah. The levees like, gave way and that's what flooded. Right. And that's New what Orleans. caused the most devastation, the most deaths. Cause like I said, I, I myself went through a category three hurricane and <sighs> it did suck. I'm not saying it didn't it, but it wouldn't have caused a destruction if it weren't for the lack of care by city officials and infrastructure in general. Cause yeah, here, here where I live, dude, there there used to be um, a, an aquarium. Like uh, there used to be floating casinos, which is actually sounds really cool, but they don't have them anymore. Yeah. Like they literally so cool. were floating entire casinos out in the water and they were gone. Mm -hmm. Entire neighborhoods literally flattened, like destroyed. And I went to past where I work. There's an alligator farm. And I took my family there when they came to visit me from California. And uh, there's signs along uh, the buildings and the fences that says, Hurricane Katrina waters were up to here and they were like 30 feet up. Oh my God. Like that's how much underwater they were. And the alligator farm was already there. And it was already there when Katrina hit. And they said that when the, when it was over and the waters went down a little bit, they had like two out of 50 alligators. left. Oh my God. <laughs> so they were spread out. The alligators were gone. And they had to like fetch them all. Have and you stuff. seen a, uh, Oh man, there was a movie that they made recently and i can't think the the name of it but it's it's basically that exact same situation there's like floodwaters that came in and alligators were like killing people like left <laughs> and right i can't think of this is this it one of those movie. like sharknado movies yes exactly oh yeah <laughs> but it's alligators yeah and, and it actually, just reminds me of that and i was like shit the aquarium house? the aquarium that i was talking about earlier i think they found their dolphins like in someone's pool like a couple miles away <laughs> like yeah dude the dolphins are just in someone's pool after the water's receded like it Damn. like tell it that my wife has a bunch of pictures like a ton of, she has a whole like um album like, album of before actually and the phrase around here a lot of times is before the storm like that's a huge phrase around here like oh yeah before the storm and it's always katrina because it did so much devastation around here yeah anyways well, uh, yeah so when Katrina was on its way to the Gulf Coast, there was an evacuation order issued to all the surrounding areas, and those with the vehicles and places and the means to get somewhere uh, left the area. And those who had no mode of transportation or destination stayed. They had no choice. What were they going to do? Yep. So they hunkered down and did what they could. There was also a group of people that stayed willingly, and they were referred to as holdouts. And Zach and Addie were among those that decided to ride out the storm in their French Quarter apartment. Lana had also stayed, and she had called Zach to tell him to get his ass over to her place so he can be with his kids. 
and they could ride this thing out together, which only makes sense, right? Be with your kids. Yeah, come on, Dad. Yeah, or where are you at? Your family needs you. Like, this is a major hurricane coming. They're fucking terrified. Mm -hmm. Like, come over here, comfort the family, be a father. Yeah. But during the phone call, Zach was pretty short with Lana and told her that he was going to stay with Addie, which pissed Lana off, rightfully. Because this left taking care of the kids solely to Lana. So she countered by saying, just fucking bring Addie then. Just bring her with you. What the fuck? Just get over here. Yeah, just, I, don't, I don't give a shit. Just yeah. be here, please. I don't. So he, he kind of paused. He seemed to consider it for a moment and then flatly responded, no. And then she angrily hung up the phone. So during the storm, while others were stockpiling supplies and gathering canned food, Zach and Addie had gathered booze and beer and lots of ice. You know, the essentials. <laughs> if I'm going to ride out a storm, yeah, I better have my beer with me. So by August 30th, the sun was shining over the city again, and the French Quarter, which is on higher ground, had not been flooded, but it still had severe wind damage and there were fell trees everywhere. There was no power anywhere in the city, and this meant that the holdouts didn't know exactly how bad New Orleans had been devastated. Since they had not been flooded out by the levee breaks and because and, they were on higher ground, they didn't realize, oh, it wasn't that bad, and people left for nothing, but... Meanwhile, the lower ninth ward and all that was fucking people were literally out. dying and they were just like, eh, it's not so bad. People are pussies. You know, it's yeah. it's all good. So they, they just had this. Uh, what's the word? Is, is it uh, that new word that everyone says all the time? Privileged. This privileged uh, mentality, oh, I guess, because they didn't yeah. quite realize the actual devastation that was going on around them. The French Quarter privilege. Yeah. Um. So since they were not affected by the hurricane that bad. Um, they believed that they had made the right decision, and when they emerged from their apartment, they walked out to an eerie, quiet city that had been almost entirely abandoned. Like, you haven't been to New Orleans, but I, if you can picture New Orleans as quiet, like, that's kind of fucking scary, dude. Like, to have this entire bustling, never-sleeping town with no sounds. It's like, a, what's that movie with Will Smith? Um, the zombie one. Uh... Oh, the last, uh, I'm going to say the last, that's fucking Yes, good. that's a game. Yeah. But I know yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, the Will Smith movie that I forget what it's called. But yeah, it's like that, where he's kind of walking around like, where is where life? Is yeah, where's yeah. everyone? It's a lot like that. So it's really unsettling. It would be like Vegas uh, during COVID. Yeah. But this didn't want to make them evacuate in the least. No, 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 no. When they looked around, they were incredibly happy to have the city to themselves. Post-Katrina, these dudes easily tapped into their more primal instincts of survival, and they spent their days clearing their street of debris and using the downed tree limbs to start fires at night. While enjoying their makeshift bonfire in the middle of the street, they would get drunk and sometimes just make love out in the open, just in the middle uh, of the street. Just yeah. fuck it. No one's hey, around. No, hey, no one's around. Let's fucking... <laughs> you want to che check this off your bucket list? <laughs> I'm sure this is like a um, probably a nice way of putting this. They probably broke into people's houses you know whatever yeah because yeah. no one's around like just they probably went wherever they wanted like up oh, it's time to yep. get down again so eventually other holdouts found them and they would set up food for their fellow new orleans new orleanians which was usually like canned beans or something canned that was easy to find you know around the city that was left over mm -hmm. but they still they were nice enough to set up a community like food area for people that were holding out as well so, so it's like it's like the walking dead yeah, essentially. Find other like, survivors. You're gonna bang hang together. Out. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's no rules really at this time. So, mm -hmm. so for a few days directly after Katrina, Zach and Addie were fully enjoying life for the first time. Nothing else mattered other than right now, not Addie's past abuse, not Zach's PTSD. In this version of New Orleans, they didn't have a job they had to report to, and they could do things they wanted on their own time. Money didn't matter. There were no responsibilities and no one to answer to. There were a few police officers left in the city, but not a whole lot, and it's not much they could do anyway. And Addie took it upon herself to make sure a patrol car regularly drove down their street by flashing her boobies to the officers whenever they <laughs> drove by. So this kind of made sure, like, if you want to see these again, you better drive by this neighborhood again tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. You know, same time. I'll be here. Yo, you want to see these titties? Come on <laughs> down. But it didn't really matter because those that stayed were seen as a kind of VIP, um, you know, true New Orleanians. You know, they were they were the chosen ones of this time. So, so they were the the honorable ones that said, hey, we stuck it out. Yeah. So the, the police didn't bother them much either way. Like they only wanted the patrol just in case there was looters or something that came through. Yeah. So this was great because a another holdout named Squirrel was a drug dealer. And he was holding everything except coke, heroin, and your cock. I'm sorry, who? Squirrel. Okay. His name is Squirrel. Squirrel. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the holdouts were kind of what? And he's, hold, and he's holding my cock. He's not holding your cock. Oh, he's holding. Yeah. He's holding everything except. Oh. Coke, no. heroin, and your cock. He's <laughs> not holding my cock. Yeah. I wish he would. Yeah, come on, Squirrel. <laughs> so the holdouts were kind of celebrities, not just in New Orleans now, but across the country. As reporters started to report from inside the city limits, they interviewed those that stayed, and Zach and Addie were featured in several papers across the country. The good times would not last forever, though, as Addie went into a local grocery store to scavenge for food one night while Zach waited outside. And during her time inside the store, there was, you know, it's pitch black, and there's no lights or anything, so she's just kind of going through, feeling around. And there was a man who was also checking the store for food, and when he saw Addie all alone, he attacked her and attempted to rape her. But she managed to fight him off and make it back to the apartment with Zach. Even though she promised she was okay, the attack seemed to have burst her bubble and the reality of living in a post-Katrina New Orleans suddenly became less fancy free and much more horrifying. And everything all of a sudden was affecting her in a very negative way. So everything came rushing back after she was was almost sexually almost abused again yeah. yeah oh man so now now this bubble is gone and this you know rose-colored glasses are off and she's realizing holy shit we live in an apocalypse like what the fuck are we doing yeah so, we're, this isn't freaking woodstock this yeah. is real life <laughs> yeah yeah so two days later though on september 3rd the bubble was burst for zach now when he looked down from a friend's balcony and he saw the army marching through their neighborhood, and now Zach was having to face his own PTSD head on. Along with the army came the flood of volunteer police officers from all over the country. This influx of government agencies caused the powers that be to declare that the state of emergency was over, even though it wasn't. And if it was, oh, yeah. it certainly wasn't because of the military police. The holdouts felt they had done more for the city post-Katrina than anyone else. And it's just these officers that came in from different parts of the country, as good as their intentions may have been, they're coming into a town or a city that they know nothing about. And they're they from what they've seen on the news of people looting, you know, people dying and things going wild, because in certain areas in New Orleans, 
it was the lawless fucking terrible landscape where humans were shitty to each other i'm not gonna lie like it was bad for a lot of people there's a lot of lawlessness and shitty things going on so when these other officers came in they weren't used they were, to that they were they weren't and they they saw the news already so they kind of when they pulled up in their cars or whatever they came their buses they got out like guns drawn expecting to be attacked immediately like they weren't they were trying to help but they were on the offense you know so they were this mindset was already like we got to regulate at all costs yeah. so it didn't it didn't really help Did that military state of mind right. like all right yeah, let's fucking let's bring order to this godforsaken town yeah and there's actually a lot of racist and terrible comments made about katrina's like I'm, i don't remember who said it but they were like well looks like nature and god did for new orleans what we couldn't do over the past 30 years meaning jesus get rid of the poor people and you know the blacks so there was a lot of shitty shitty opinions and way people were handling it this time so it's just even though it seemed like they were trying to help it just wasn't yeah so this seemingly random decree of letting people back in because uh katrina was safe again it just pissed off zach and addy and on september 19 2005 the order was given to allow everyone back into the city it wasn't just a lack of care from authorities it was the fact that this meant that life was going to be returning to normal and they would have to get jobs and use money to survive again how they just have to rebuild they have to start living you know before during immediately after katrina they were working to clean their city and they were doing it on their own time they were doing it how they wanted now they have bills again they have rent again they have all these responsibilities real life comes flooding back real quick yeah and so they just weren't happy i mean I can kind of understand it. Well, you can understand it. We can understand it now with COVID, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah, with people not willing to go back to work. And I don't, that's a whole different conversation. I don't blame them. I think they need to hold out so that we can control the wages. But that's that's a whole different thing. I I think that the point I'm getting at is that, you know, they had this bill in place for um, evictions during COVID. You couldn't, oh, that's right. You couldn't, yeah, you couldn't couldn't evict someone. And that moratorium ended quickly after that. And they weren't paying rent. And completely understandable if you're not, if you're unable to get work, right? Because of COVID, you're on quarantine, you you can't go to work and you're not eligible for the unemployment and getting those, you know, bigger paychecks, you know, the extra $600 that they were getting for unemployment. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you pay your rent with no job? Just don't. Right. And so they couldn't evict them. Like, Hey, we're in a pandemic. You can't evict us. But how does that affect the people that own the buildings? Yeah. Because their life and their livelihood revolves around getting rent money to pay for the building, but they right. weren't they weren't uh, immune from from the COVID. They they still had to pay those bills. Right. It didn't affect everyone equally. Yeah, and yeah. and so it's kind of understandable, right? It's, yeah. It's like, hey, all right, everyone can come back, rebuild your town. But you have to do it with your own money. You have to right. find jobs. But where are you going to find the jobs? Well, yeah, because we know FEMA's out? not helping anybody. No, what are you going to do when the whole town's wiped out? How are you going to yeah. find jobs when there's I don't no, nothing there? I, I, I don't see how I really... It's very... I can fe- almost feel their frustration because, like you say, we, with the COVID stuff, even though I personally I never stopped working throughout the whole thing, it's, I can still understand going through something like this. So Yeah, like I mean, I, I worked EMS. I... <laughs> You never stopped ever. I never stopped ever. <laughs> yeah, I went through the fucking the, the the times where it was calm and the times where it got really shitty, and yeah. I, I still had to work. And granted, it, it's not a privilege per se, but um, you were 
I, I didn't un- blessed, yeah. lucky enough. I don't know. I, I guess I still got a paycheck throughout throughout COVID. I can't yeah. imagine being said, "Hey, you don't come to work," and having to be like, "Oh shit!" Well, I got bills to pay. I, you know, my car payment is still going. I still have to pay rent because I don't live in an apartment. But I can't imagine having all those stresses of life and not having a job, not yeah. taking that regular paycheck home, and just that stress alone would. Oh man, that would be so terrible. Yeah, so as life began to go back to normal, Lana returned to the city, and Lana was fucking furious with Zach. You see, it had been damn near a month since Lana had that conversation with Zach over the phone, and Zach didn't return her calls, Zach didn't attempt to answer her messages, and for the entire, pretty much almost like month, maybe a month and a half, like he was MIA, and she actually thought Zach died during the storm. And obviously, when she found out that he was just chilling with Addie, she was fucking pissed because he had just left the kids with Lana without any yeah. assistance, no and money, he, he, no help, like watching them, <laughs> nothing. And she had she had to be forced evacuated. And she went to Houston, I think, and she worked in Applebee's to make ends meet. But yeah, he was out chilling in the freaking yeah. Uh, he was out fucking living streets, Mad Max just, and having yeah, fun, just, fucking yeah, just stuff, fucking like, in the streets. Yeah, and she's over here living her real life with her kids, taking care of them. And Zach was just like, eh. Yeah, okay. whatever. Okay. But like, yeah, Zach, he genuinely seemed unfazed by all this and didn't care. <laughs> he didn't tell her anything. And shortly after the city was opened back up, the, the couple, Zach and Addie, hosted a party at their apartment. And their friend Capricia remembers them just like emanating love for each other. You could feel it. You, and it seemed like they could not be happier together if they tried. Like, you could just feel that this event of Katrina had just brought them together more than more. anything. Yeah. So during the party, Capricia remembers Addie making a toast in which she proclaimed, I wish this love for every human being on the planet. Even Zach's mom remembers him saying that Addie was his soulmate. When Lana found out where the couple had been staying, she rented a car and drove straight to their apartment and banged on their door with a bat. But Zach wasn't home and Addie did not answer the door. (laughs) So... Pretty much as soon as Lana left, she got a call from Zach asking for a face-to-face meetup. And even though he had wanted her to bring the kids, she refused. They met up at a local bar and Zach demanded to see the kids while simultaneously telling her that Addie never wants to see her again. This pissed off Lana and she said, fuck that. I need to meet the woman who's going to be my going to be stepmom to my kids, which yeah. speaking from experience, is a pretty normal thing to ask um, when <clears throat> her, well, when especially my, when it comes to kids. Yeah. When my wife, wife's ex-husband re uh, got a girlfriend again and spent, was actually spending real time, she's like, I got to meet this person because Carter is going to be over there. I need to know who she is. You know, so I understand this 100%. Like, yeah. it's normal. It's a pretty normal thing to ask. Like, hey, let me meet this person. They're going to be around my kid. Yep. So Zach replied, why should you meet Addie when I've never even met your boyfriend that you've had for over a year now? Meaning the boyfriend that she had when he got back from Germany. They're still together. Mm-hmm. So Lana sassily snapped back, oh, you want to meet him? Then she pointed to the end of the bar to a man who was sitting nearby and said, he's right there. And without even looking in her boyfriend's direction, through gritted teeth and seething anger, Zach said, I have no desire to meet the man who took my wife. Lana's so like, she seems kind of cool. <laughs> Lana's like, oh, you want to meet him? Oh, yeah, he's, he's right, right there. there. Yeah. yeah, go say hi. <laughs> but I think of all this, I think Lana is the most sane by far. She has her issues. Oh, with, for sure. But she is the most grounded in all of this. And I'm glad yeah. the kids at least have her. So 
After the confrontation with Lana, Zack explained to Addie that if he was going to get his kids every other weekend, she was going to have to meet Lana. And because Addie loved Zack, uh, she... Okay, so she loved him. And to his surprise, Addie agreed. And he was. she was even excited to meet the kids. She, she was so excited, she called her friend and had them drive her to Walmart to buy them some clothes. And while shopping, she became to the realization that like, she was like, I think I'll have Zach's baby. Like it was just kind of, she was in a good space, you know? Yeah. yeah. And she was excited about the future together. On the day she was supposed to meet Lana, they rented a car and drove up to Baton Rouge to pick them up. But Addie flat refused to even step out of the car. And she sat inside the car, just sulking the entire time. To make matters worse, she barely spoke or interacted with Zach's kids. In fact, she chose to go bar crawling all night when they were there, and when she got home, she would close her bedroom door and lock it so she could spend alone time with Zach. The kids rightfully suspect that Addie didn't even like them, and Addie became so miserable that when Zach had the kids for a weekend, he would have to go stay at a hotel with them just to be able to enjoy their time together. So that... What, what is that called? That um, when, you, when you have a bipolar uh, switch... Um, like an episode uh, oh oh she, she went from real happy to fuck everything real quick oh man if there's a word for name, it yeah there's a word for it it's not a big deal so this went on for a while and addy seemed to get more and more unhinged around march of 2006 with the carnival season bringing an influx of tourists and therefore an influx of tips addy and zach chose to spend the extra cash on not only booze but lots of drugs too Obviously, this did not help her already deteriorating mental state. And after every single night of partying hard, it was guaranteed that they would have a massive fight. After an especially brutal fight that turned physical, Zach decided he had had enough and booked a train ride back to Portland. The train ride itself took four days in which he spent most of that time mulling over all of his failures in his life. And obviously, he missed Addie real bad, almost immediately because toxic relationships can make a person stupid. Like, straight up. Like you're just not thinking clearly. Oh yeah, you're just it's like some, sometimes they call it like the honeymoon stage. Yeah, but this is just I think toxic relationships in general. Like you fight and then all of a sudden, oh shit, I love that person, and even though you aren't thinking clearly, it, you know what I mean? Like, it's, like you like, don't really ah, miss no, that person. You miss a parts like a person, not them specifically. You just want something from someone. I think it's also the fear of being alone. That's what that's what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah. It's not her specifically. It's a it's a, a loneliness. I don't right. want to be alone. Mm -hmm. So eventually that same feeling of feeling like a failure crept back after only a few weeks in Portland because he called Lana to tell her he was sorry he left her. And the kids and Lana was like, wait, what the fuck you mean you in Portland? You you left New Orleans. You better get your ass back to New Orleans. How fucking dare you just bail on your kids? Like she didn't even know until he said he was sorry. Okay, so, so, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm in. Mm -hmm. Portland. What? What? Yeah. So now back in New Orleans, Addie had been wallowing in depression, so much so that Capriccio thought she may commit suicide. And because of this, Capriccio bought Zach a plane ticket back to New Orleans. Upon his arrival, him and Addie spent three whole days just wrapped up in each other. However, those three days would be the only days that they would get before they were both back to their bullshit. During the summer, they had the most toxic relationship imaginable. They would break up, then hook back up, then things would blow up and they would fight and they would break up again. At a certain point, this vicious cycle would happen every 18 hours. 
This wore on Zach a lot, and he was in a constant fog of depression. As for Addie, she was also suffering, but she was suffering because during Katrina, which at this point was maybe six, eight months ago now. Yeah. Just during Katrina, um, she had ran out of bipolar medication and she never refilled them. And like I said, this, this, okay, real quick, 10 months. It's been 10, 10 months. months since she had taken them. So she was becoming volatile. Like she's not medicated. She's not being controlled at all. And that's not good for anybody. After one of their daily fights, Addie took a gun with her as she stormed out of the apartment where she had an altercation with a random man on the street and then pointed the gun at this dude. So when he took off to call the cops, Addie took off towards her apartment and put on her pajamas as fast as she could, then turned out all the lights. And when the cops came banging on our door, she answered it all groggy as, as if she had been asleep this whole time. Oh, the classic. Yeah. Like, I was asleep. Oh, I was asleep. What is, what is it, officer? We, we've all asleep. seen it. You've seen you, Everyone's watched cops. You've yeah. seen that. Yeah, bang on the door and the guy's like, what? No, I was asleep this whole time. It's like, <laughs> come on, bro. Yeah, so when they made in the door, of course the guy easily identified her. And then the cops found a gun and a little bit of weed. So she was arrested and taken downtown. I just laughed because she's just like, no, I was asleep. What? No, I was asleep, officer. <laughs> she had been charged with aggravated assault with a firearm along with possession of drugs and paraphernalia. Zach, though, he just let her sit in jail. And to pay bail, Addie asked other friends and she ended up spending like two weeks in jail till she came up with the money. Damn. But when she got reunited with Zach, things were good for like a month after that. Like, I don't know what it was, like a hard reset or something because they spent some time apart. And so things were okay for like a month. Okay, well, things were okay for them for like a month outwardly. But Zach was fighting several demons on his own. During the month of September, three major events happened. The first being Lana had finally officially asked for divorce after being separated for about two years. Second... Zach was having an affair with a man. When what? Zach's <laughs> when Zach's friend Squirrel found out about his boyfriend and asked him about it, all he said was, "Squirrel, you know I'm kind of bi." <laughs> and when Squirrel pressed him a little more, he explained that in the past he had let a couple dudes blow him a little. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. And lastly, on September 28th. Uh, Zach and Addie had yet another nasty fight and Addie kicked him out and locked the door and the commotion Zach caused banging on the door and yelling caused neighbors to call the police. When they arrived, Zach was sitting on the stoop, not expecting to see cops. So he stood up to greet them. And as he stood up, he tried to discreetly toss the weed he was holding, but it didn't work. The cops saw him toss the bag aside. And now <laughs> there's no Anytime someone says like, oh, he discreetly tried to toss the weed. You just like watch the video and he's like, yeah, what? He just like throws it behind his back. What weed? The, the way it was described in the book, the way it's described in the book is like the cops just saw it go sailing and they're like, okay. So now it's Zach's turn to be charged with possession. It was like, hey, what was that bag you threw on the roof? What? I was what? asleep. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I was sleeping on the stoop, bro. Uh, so Addy, however, unlike Zach, did bail him out after two days. The month of September seemed to push Zach to his breaking point and just really laid out all of his failures for everybody to see now. Uh, so as October was starting, Addy was struggling herself with her landlord as she was trying to get him to fix the toilet, but was getting nowhere. At the same time, Addie had heard around the grapevine about Zach's affair with a man, and to say she was furious is a bit of an understatement. 
she took it upon herself to mercilessly mock him about his let's just say uh, homosexual nature no no bisexual uh, bisexual bisexual nature uh so to be clear she didn't say that what she said she went with the f word that sounds like a french bread baguette right that's the bread oh okay <laughs> so she <laughs> she was real she was real mean about it she okay. was not holding back okay. uh, she would ride her bike to his job and say things like it would be nice to have sex with a straight man one of these days and she didn't care who was within earshot she wanted to embarrass the shit out of him her mental issues along with mounting financial issues and dealing with the cheating boyfriend had also pushed Addie to her breaking point so now we have two people in an already extremely toxic relationship at the end of their rope. So they figured it was time to move out into a new place together. Oh, yeah. That's what you do, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Addie did. Anyway, she figured this. She explained to Zach that maybe finding a new place together will help fix their relationship and they could start new where Zach could bring his kids to stay with him and he wouldn't have to stay in a hotel with them. Like, it was just she was trying to lay out positive things that they could start over and make life a little bit better for both of them like a so mutual she, agreement yeah she was on the the positive side of the of her bipolar disorder. right she was on her up she was climbing it yeah or was she we'll find out so on october 2nd that's exactly what they did after walking around the french quarter they came across a for rent sign at 826 north rampart street and it turns out the sign had been put out that very day so they called the landlord and Zach gave him $1,500. So without even drawing up a contract, he gave them the keys right then and there. Since pretty much because he paid him up front. So he's like, here's the keys. We'll worry about the paperwork later. Like, here you yeah, go. You like, guys can move nah, right now. Yeah, he's like, you're good for it. Let's just. Yeah, you guys already gave me the money. We'll just take the time to draw, draw up the contract and the, and the lease. But see, that's the thing. Eddie had known Zach had been working several jobs and had saved up quite a bit of money. And she had none. On October 4th, two days after they found the apartment, Addie went to go see the new landlord by herself to officially sign the contract, and she only put her name on the lease. That afternoon, the landlord oh, got a call from Zach asking if he signed the lease with Addie, and he said yes, he had. So Zach was like, fuck, man, she locked me out of the apartment. I have no legal rights to the place. I can't get in. So that night, the landlord showed up and found them loudly arguing outside. And when she saw the landlord, she immediately said, I can't cheat with on me with the man. So after hearing this, the dude, the landlord slowly backed away and he just left them to it. He wasn't about to involve himself. And they were so openly, well, at least she was openly telling him what their problems were. He's like, yeah, yeah you guys I figured this out. I don't need to know any of this information. Yeah, this is not just, involve me. Just, just settle, sign, this, settle sign down. this paper and pay me every month and uh, I'll be out of your hair. <laughs> so... <sighs> They, they argued like viciously all night until about 1 a.m. on October 5th. The thing is, Addie was more than just stealing his money. She was taking away time with his children. She, she even though she didn't know it, Zach was technically homeless. And on the nights where she kicked him out, and he had nowhere to go. He would just sleep on an empty building like he found a couch on the third floor of an empty building and he would just sleep there when he had nowhere to go. And she didn't know this. And even Lana didn't know this. Like he was another failure in his life. So he kept it to himself. Yeah. So getting this place pulled out from under him like this completely broke Zach. Yeah, I mean, um, that, that's that's tough. And 
yeah you could probably uh understand us being men mm -hmm. we tend to keep uh oh yeah yeah yeah. problems that we have are not made known yeah we just keep it under mm -hmm. push it under the rug a little bit and kick suffer it down silently the road. suffer yeah, silently kick it down the road and oh, man it's not a healthy way to live right oh not at all no, no. those are signs no. of major issues but it's just kind of i don't know if society ingrained in us or maybe we just naturally like that i, mean, I think it's a strong right strong silent type kind of thing yeah but, i mean um, like my upbringing with with my grandpa who's the strong military like never expressed any outward emotion yeah and so great. like i took that on yeah growing up hispanic or mexican uh mental Same. issues weren't really a thing yeah it's like, come yeah. on now, get over it. So here we go. All right, let's do it. Two weeks later, on October 18th, 2006, Zach had gone to Squirrel's apartment to try and convince him to go partying with him. But Squirrel was not in the mood to party. So he said, uh, big gulps, huh? Well, see you later. And he took off with a dub of Coke towards the Omni Royal Hotel, where he made his way up to the seventh floor and then to the pool slash bar that was up there. Oh yeah, and uh, this music right here, that's our cue for um, trigger warning. Yeah, this is the sadness. Right, all of this has been pretty bad so far. All of this has been, it's a different trigger for all kinds of abuse and stuff, but this part yeah. right here is it's what I consider to be the story. worst. Yeah, yeah this is a fucked up story, but this is where it gets bad. Yeah, so uh, he, at this pool slash bar that was at the top of the Omni Royal Hotel, Zach really liked this place because when he had his kids, he would bring them swimming up here. And it just held like a lot of good memories for him in general. Like it was just a, a positive place for him. Yeah, it was so like it, a, the, 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 the safe space. Yeah. So it wasn't even five. He arrived there like at 430, 440 around that time he arrived there. Um, and this is all caught on. This is all we know this because of cameras in the hotel. All of what's about to happen. So it wasn't even 5 p.m. yet, but when Zach got there, he had several shots of Jameson and it was just ready to party. Like he had that dub of Coke and he is buzzing pretty good. Yeah. He's like, all right, let's have a good time. So after a few hours of drinking, Zach started to wander around the pool and he was just like looking over the city, just admiring the town that he had made his home. Then he walked towards the pool again and then he walked back towards the balcony. Then he walked towards the pool. Then he walked towards the balcony. Then he walked towards the pool. Then he walked back towards the balcony. And at exactly 8.30 p.m., Zach grabbed the railing and threw himself over, where he landed on top of the parking garage five stories below. Zach was dead instantly. An unlucky guest had seen Zach hit, and they called the front desk, and the front desk called police. When the police arrived on the scene, they found Zach's body laying face up and blood coming out of Zach's head. And aside from his hips twisted awkwardly for a jumping death, he was in relatively good shape. So the police are searching in his pockets to try and find any ID. And in his front pocket, they found a plastic baggie. And inside, they found military dog tags and a handwritten note with the words for police, for police only, on the outside. When they took the note out and unfolded it, the letter, which was kind of long for a suicide note, read, This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol to 826 North Rampart Street, you will find the dismembered corpse, my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven 
on the stove, and in the fridge. Along with full documentation on the both of us and a full signed confession for myself. The keys in my right front pocket are for the gates. Call the landlord to let you in, Zach Bowen. As brutal as that note is, the officers who were there thought the coroner was playing some kind of cruel prank and kind of giggled a little bit until they saw the look on the coroner's face to let them know that this was not in fact a joke. The police tore through New Orleans and reached the landlord's door within minutes, and they actually searched the landlord's place thinking the note was about his apartment. It took a few minutes, but the landlord led them to the apartment Addie had rented. When the police busted down the door and walked into the apartment for the first time, they were horrified and almost could not believe what they were seeing with their own eyes. The apartment was covered in beer cans and cigarette butts, and it was super cold. Then they saw that Zach had written messages all over the walls that read, Please call my wife. I'm a total failure. Look in the oven. I love her. Please help me stop the pain. And in the kitchen, there were giant silver arrows above the oven pointing down at the oven. And when they opened it, they found Addie's legs charred black from being cooked in one of those oil like turkey pans. Above that, there was a pot on the stove, and when they lifted the lid, they found Addie's head inside. Inside the fridge, they found just her torso inside a black garbage bag. <sighs> then they found his uh, confession, his diary that he had written over the past two weeks. <clears throat> and um, in the diary, this next part all comes from what he said in the diary now. So to explain how he got to this point, we have to go back to two weeks to the night Addie stole the apartment. The reason the couple stopped arguing at 1 a.m. on October 5th was because, in Zach's own words, She had stolen this apartment. If you ask the landlord, he'll explain that one. She tried to kick me out and then would not shut the fuck up. So I very calmly strangled her. And it was very quick. And after sexually defiling the body a few times, I was posed with the question, how to dispose of the corpse? At this point though, Zach had passed out drunk and then still got up for his shift at 6 a.m. Then he worked all day and he didn't return back to the apartment until 9 p.m. that night. It was time to clean up what he had done. Came home and moved the body to the tub got a saw I hacked off her feet her hands her head and I put her head in the oven after giving it an awful haircut then I put her hands and feet in the water on the range <sighs> so for the next few days Zach would spend his time doing drugs and hooking up with sex workers and even trying to hook up with his wife one last time but had gotten shut down on his last day that he decided he would go to work, he called Lana and asked her to bring, her, bring his kids to where he worked. When Lana showed up with the kids, uh, he greeted them and then told them to run inside and get whatever candy and sodas they want while he talked to Lana. He knew he wasn't going to be taking the kids this weekend, so he gave Lana $600 to smooth things over for now. Until he jumped from the top of the Omni Royal Hotel, Zach just spent the remaining money he had on whatever he wanted. When he ran out is when the full realization of what he had done set in 
and the guilt he experienced caused a full mental breakdown and that's when he gets his extensive suicide confession and the writings on the wall and that was the story of Zach and Addie damn so was he messed up was this accumulation of the system failing over and over again for people on an individual level you know it's obviously I'm not taking the blame fully away from Zach. He did what he did and it's awful. I'm not blaming Addie. She had her own problems. Zach did too. It's this is really I'm blaming the system overall. Honestly, like this is a failed people who were failed in life completely. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, there were tons of, you know, they, they say the, you know, the writing on the wall and you know, his time in the military and being stripped of seeing his family because they just wanted to keep him in the war. Yeah. Like that puts a toll on someone. Yeah, it does. Right. Mentally. And so, you know, you keep adding on all the things that he saw during the war uh, and his plea to see his family during that time. And they're like, nope. Sorry, son. You signed a contract. That's that's. Uh, I can't. I can't, I can't imagine that. I, oh, I, I've been put in that position. I I can't imagine not being able to see your family after seeing horrible things and 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 knowing your your wife at the time has Hep C and you know maybe dying and like sorry you can't see her. Well, I, I don't know why, but I didn't write it down. But I totally forgot to mention this all information i got was mainly from a book called shake the devil off by ethan brown and in the book it kind of explains it away as the military was already over budget with a lot of things in their maybe their specific uh, area of war and they didn't want to spend the extra money to pay him to go back to germany to take care of his family on top of already being over budget on the war so it was like an unnecessary expense to them that they just weren't willing to take and yeah, that's the some, way the book yeah someone that was looking at a book not looking at a human mm -hmm. and not processing human emotion and just saying nope sorry we can't afford it um also along with that book i did watch i don't know if you watched it will but it's um a show called uh final witness i don't think i've seen it well, I think I told you, but I don't know if you, it's like a 40 hour, 40, hour, 40 minute episode, not 40 hours, 40 hour, holy 40, shit, 40 minute this, episode on the show called Lord of the Rings final witness. And, um, along with the, the book, I, there's a few other websites, but one of the interesting, I didn't want to bring it up during the episode. I just want to kind of put it as a side note, but the apartment that Zach and Addie had rented at the very end at 826 North Rampart, it was directly above a known very well-known voodoo shop and it kind of in certain circles brings a mystifying aspect to the to the case where was this um you know more of a spiritual thing that happened that was causing them to lose their minds more and and it also there's there was um in the apartment that they they rented the back window was the bathroom window and um, a guy that used to live in that actual apartment had moved out because he got bad vibes from it. He moved to another one across the courtyard to a different unit, but in the same apartment complex. 
And he looked over that Thursday night when Zach got home from work and he noticed the bathroom light was on, but it, all night it never turned off, not once. It never turned off and it gave him this bad juju. It gave him this ominous feeling. And he even claims that there was like, when it was happening, there was like shadows dancing across the courtyard and that he couldn't explain. And he thought there was like black figures standing on his balcony and on the outside in the courtyard. But when he looked out, nothing was there. But he could just feel that it wasn't, something yeah, was feeling. wrong. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of, I didn't I, I didn't bring it up during, even though it's an interesting aspect of it, it, it wasn't relevant to what really happened, I think. It's just like kind of like an interesting, like, oh, you know, there's some something going on there. But to me, it's just, it's not real to me anyway. Like, is it possible? Sure. Maybe. Yeah, there's that yeah. aspect of it. But I think the fact that it happened like the day they moved in kind of negates that. Like they've been struggling for years at this point, you know, they've been going on a downward spiral for a long time. Yeah, it was a buildup. It was yeah. the, uh, we'll say the, the breaking of the levee. <laughs> yeah. And then everything just came flooding yeah. in. But also that uh, Quil- final witness. Qu- what? Yeah, to, to, to say it quilliquigly. Quilliquigly? <laughs> to say it poetically, yeah, it was, it was the breaking of a levee. You know, you had this buildup of emotion and shit that was going down the road. And it kept sweeping under the rug. And then finally it came to an end and it, it, it broke. And mm-hmm. this is what... This was the, the, the end of that. He dismembered murdered and dismembered Addie there's also a couple of friends that were interviewed that said that Addie had told them that Zach was not who they thought he was that behind closed doors Zach was he not this friendly giant you know he he was he had his dark side he had his violent side and he never showed that outwardly and pretty much seems like only Addie knew about it and like the day before or the day after he jumped off or not the day after the day before or the day before that he jumped off the Omni Royal he had told a friend you know I'm not the person everyone thinks I am so maybe he was struggling with violent tendencies for a long time and we just didn't outwardly know about it yeah had some demons that were yeah just so um dormant until uh yeah, but that, that final witness show I was talking about, it's like a 40-minute episode of like different stuff. But um, it talks, it interviews a friend of theirs that she worked at the Hogs Bar with them. And her name is Margaret Sanchez, and she's on this documentary about Zach and Addie. And it turns out Margaret Zan- Sanchez killed and dismembered a 22-year-old mother and dancer in 2012. And her body parts were what? found scattered along the Mississippi Gulf Coast, like... Uh, on June seventh of two thousand twelve, so this girl who was interviewed for the murder of Addie and the suicide of Zach, she's on this. You can watch it yourself. Her name is Margaret Sanchez. She killed with some other guy named Terry. She killed a, a young dancer and dismembered her. Damn, it's just like I don't do. I don't know. It's crazy. Like it's. You want me to move over there? Yes, I do. <laughs> so yeah it's just a, it's just these different layers like there's the voodoo layer there's the, the close friend of theirs doing the same thing you know it, it's just all this stuff 
it adds a whole interesting level to it, I think. And it's just as messed up as the story already is, it's it could be even worse. And maybe there's stuff we have no idea about. Yeah. There's something going on down there. Yep. Well, that was today's episode, Zach and Eddie. Or Yeah. Yep. Messed up all around. It is. Mm-hmm. But let's learn from it, right? Yeah. Let's not repeat these. So the, that's all we got for this week. Uh, Will, you got anything? Um, I got I got nothing. I mean, <clears throat> obviously, we're, we're starting a new... Uh, format format which is uh me and tavio yeah and again we we want your uh your help your guidance if you have anything we you want us to cover any interesting stories more than welcome to cover those yeah but there's up on the socials bloodthirstypod at gmail.com and we love you love you boys and girls obviously mostly the boys (laughs) mostly the boys (laughs) also the girls (laughs) but Bye. Bye.